Cool sound, Scotty. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Stinking Paws podcast. Good morning, Scott here as usual. A very special edition today. No Paul, no Charlie, unfortunately. But sitting in the chair in their place, I've got the co-host, my co-host of the Real Britannia podcast, Stephen. Hello, mate. Hello. Thank you for having me on. More than welcome, my friend. And in another chair, somewhere at the other end of the country, is the host of John Lennon on... No, sorry, is the host of Glass Onion on John Lennon, Life and Life Only, and Film Gold. I always fuck that up. Good morning, Anthony. Oh, that's okay. (laughs) Thanks for fucking that up. No problem. Well, I'm just glad he remembered which podcast he was recording today, to be honest. Yeah, Yeah. it's a Sunday morning. It's normally a real Britannia that we get together at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. Yes. Um... Who's responsible for this today? Come on, hands up. Who 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 chose this movie? That, that would be me. Explain yeah. yourself, sir. Uh, <laughs> you, you'd be amazed about how often that gets said to me. Um, <laughs> usually by people in in uniform uh, writing things down in a tiny little notebook. Um, <laughs> it's a film that I think doesn't necessarily get as much notice as, as it could do. Certainly, the although the director and the star are very well known, this doesn't seem to have been uh, one of the ones that the director really uh, gets a lot of praise for. In actual fact, when it came out, I think it, it, he seems to have think it, it um, didn't do very well for his career at the time, mm-hmm. even though in retrospect, it, it's done... Uh, a lot better. It's a, a, a bit of an odd one because I mean I'm quite a, a big fan of film noirs and this is you know smack bang in the middle of, of the, the era of some great film noir mm. and weirdly though it's not set in the, the rainy streets of, of New York or or San Francisco or, or something this is set in the middle of a desert so having a film noir out in the <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the bright sunlight of a, of a desert um, is a bit of an oddity, but it works. And yes. uh, so I just felt it was something that was a bit overlooked and was um, needing for us to give some attention to. Excellent. Am I right in thinking, Anthony, you had not seen this before? No, I had seen it. Believe it or not, it was yet another movie drone film. And was it? I've, I've got a feeling I'm casting my mind back more than three decades now. I think it may have even been the first movie drone film I saw. Right. Because it's stuck in my head. I remember Alex Cox introducing it. Yeah. And I think, um, in fact, when I was young, one of the career choices I was considering was journalist. Yeah. And uh, I don't know whether this film encouraged <laughs> me or put me off. <laughs> but uh, no, I was, I've always been fascinated by media. I think the mainstream media, what they call mainstream, has is plumbing the depths of propaganda to the point of ridiculousness now. But mm. it's still a fascinating topic. And uh, no, I was really, I was really pleased to watch this again. I feel like I might have seen, I think I would, I don't know if you've seen that Discovering series, Billy, 
the directors and there's a they did a Billy Wilder one it came up and said oh, I remember that film Ace in the Hole so yeah it was good rewatch so probably second time or possibly third time only second time for me um, mm. I watched it at half past five yesterday morning uh, <laughs> for reasons I won't go into, I had a lot to do yesterday, and the, the plans I had to watch it yesterday evening went totally out the window. So I was up bright and early watching it, and it just didn't dampen my enthusiasm or my enjoyment of the movie at all. Watching it that early, uh, it is 1951. It's Ace in the Hole. It's Billy Wilder. It's Kirk Douglas. We'll be back after this. Trailer. Trailer. Quiet, everybody. Listen to me. Listen! Beneath this sinister mountain, a man is buried alive, trapped by a cave-in. And from every part of a shocked and anxious nation, the crowds stream to watch the desperate rescue crews fighting against time, battering their way to the barrier of solid rock, while far below, a daring reporter makes his way into the treacherous, crumbling tunnel that is the only lifeline between the helpless victim and the outside world. You'll be out of here by tomorrow morning. No, I won't. I'll never reach me by tomorrow morning. You'll be out of here in 12 hours. Hang on! Kirk Douglas has his greatest role as the reporter who would do anything for a story. Jan Sterling becomes a star of the first rank as the not-so-heartbroken wife of the man buried beneath the mountain. Maybe we'll have a couple of drinks. Maybe you'll even take me out for a big evening, huh? Why don't you wash that platinum out of your hair? Phony, below-the-belt journalism, that's what it is. Not below-the-belt, right in the gut, Mr. Boot. Human interest. Nothing you've ever seen before has the tremendous human interest of Ace in the Hole. For here is a startling story of human emotions and human desires played against the most exciting fight to save a man's life ever depicted on the screen. Now, when Smollett comes, you can give him your orders. Tell him to go in through the cliff dwelling, shore it up, and get him out fast. Not through the cliff dwelling. You can't get him out that way anymore. Okay, that's Ace in the Hole, as we said. Released in 1951, directed by Billy Wilder. Starring Kirk Douglas, Jen Sterling, Robert Arthur, Porter Hall, Frank Cady and Richard Benedict, amongst many others. Stephen, it's your choice, sir. Can you give us the synopsis, please, mate? Yep. A frustrated former big city journalist, now stuck working for an Albuquerque newspaper, exploits the story of a man trapped in a cave to rekindle his career. But the situation quickly escalates into an out-of-control circus. Literally. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about literally. it, isn't it? It's literally a circus with a big top and which, roller coaster which is, rides. Yeah. Which lends uh, lends the uh, the detail to why when they they re-released the film at a mm. certain point and under a different name without Billy Wilder's knowledge at the yeah. time, and uh, they did change the the name to it. So I think it was the the big carnival, if I'm correct. Big carnival, the, I mean, really, I didn't yeah. know that. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. So they they because uh, there were a number of things they did to try and make it more palatable or to sell it again, or and how much of that was just giving it a different name, hoping people would go see it twice. There was also the the fact where 
did some stuff with a poster as well and made it look more like it was Kirk Douglas who was stuck in the hole. Um, really? And, oh and various, various, various <laughs> things like that to try and 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 change uh, the the perspective of it so people were more likely to um, to go see it. But yeah, the the big carnival was one of the alternatives names they gave it when they, they tried to re-release it shortly after it, it having had its first run. So um, was it not generally sort of well received on its first release then? Yeah, it wasn't. It didn't go down very well when it was uh, in actual fact. Um, the story is that they actually took money off him for his next feature um, in order to to pay for, for this profits he did successfully for the next film. He then um, lost money, you know, lost that money, um, some of it, in order yeah. to pay for, for the losses on this, which he hadn't agreed to as such, but the uh, the film company were seemed to feel entitled to do so. Um, it, it wasn't. I mean, obviously, it's it's got better praise since then. Um, yeah. But at the time, yeah, it didn't go down um, particularly uh, successfully, um, which was unfortunate because he'd had a great success just before this and and success after it. But I'm just looking. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. And then Stella like Seventeen, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. What a, what a run! Like before this was Sunset yeah. Boulevard, as you say, mate. Then he's in the hole. Stalag Seventeen. Then Sabrina. Then the Seven Year Itch. That is an yes. amazing run. And then uh, before that, before that, he's had Double Indemnity, Lost Weekend. Yeah. yeah. And there's Witness for the Prosecution. Some like it hot the apartment. Bloody hell! <laughs> it's like Sydney Lumet. Well, I don't know if we did a Sydney Lumet. Or I did it on someone else's show, but yeah, you look through and it's like oh, I've seen that one. I've seen that one. I've seen that one. And they're so diverse as well. Yeah, and, and I see why Stephen likes Billy Wilder. You know, he's one of your favourite directors, sort of like writers, yeah. isn't he? Mm-hmm. Oh, me too, yeah. me too. I yeah, uh, I think it was too cynical. That was one. Of, that was the thing. His audience was a bit turned off. Although you know, Sunset Boulevard was pretty cynical, really. But I think that's the reason it wasn't successful. But and I think and it, it was. It was also because it was the press at the time weren't quite as um, you know weren't seen as openly. Um, sort of corrupt in the the way that we now would happily accept. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they, they hid it. They hid it very respectfully. Um, so they did yeah. a better job then, and it, and even to the stage where you know having um, you know other officials like the sheriff and things in on mm. on the um, on the con as it were, that had to be turned down apparently because it was you know the censors weren't quite happy that the police chief the the sheriff was actually so keen to be involved in this corruption he they had to make it more that he was a bit more persuaded into it to stop the being disrespect for the authorities in that way so i think you know he was a bit ahead of his time with regards to sort of pointing out that certain professions or certain <laughs> roles within society are not not necessarily uh worthy of automatic respect so yeah. it didn't yes it didn't go down well as it as it could have done with the tone i don't think and i think that was um, not any fault of the film or the writing or anything. I think it was just the audience not being there yet. As the, sh- the sheriff's rubber arm gets twisted uh, fairly quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. take too much, no. doesn't take too long, yeah. Re-election, yep, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Would you say it's a typical Billy Wilder, or does Billy Wilder transgress all sort of genres and, and sort of like styles of movie making? Because... We we know he's an expert at comedy with some like it hot. We know he's an expert mm. at with double indemnity. You know, if you were to you know pick two genres and go to the top of the tree, you've actually got some like it hot and double indemnity both sitting there. Is this a typical Billy Wilder? I mean, for me, I'm going to say the dialogue is very snappy and very Wilder esque. 
But is it a bit of a diversion from stuff he's done previously or stuff he'd do in the future, this sort of movie? Looking at this list, I'd say there's a lot of diversity. Because if you take someone like Hitchcock, as much as we love Hitchcock, they're fairly similar, aren't they? You know, it's usually the wrong man accused. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's obviously he did a few comedies, but I don't know. What do you reckon, Stephen? Even, yeah. Well, I think there's broadly there's um, themes that, you know, go through all of Billy Wilder's films, really. I mean, you've got the the thing of, of somebody pretending to be there, they're not, which is very often a, a covered in the entire film, which is, you know, you've got that in Double Indemnity, uh, Stella 17, you know, you can look at all of them, you've got that light and dark of somebody pretending to be something and then it turning mm-hmm. out that they're, they're not just not just in some cases fooling the audience, but they're actually, um, you know, fooling somebody else in the film. And I think that that, that way that the human relationships and, and stuff works with it, I think is where his theme of, of humanity comes through. I mean, that's why this one might have been slightly different in that, because it's doing it in a different way. But ultimately, I don't see that this is um, that far away from just a general thing that Billy Wilder actually does throughout all his films, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, I think um, maybe it's just a bit more uh, cynical, but I kind of loved it for that, from the vantage, vantage point of 70 years later. Mm. It's pretty. Re- I, I mean, obviously, it's a bit. Uh, there's a a lot of it's quite symbolic because the timeline's a bit, <laughs> a bit strange. It all happens so quickly. But I think what it says about the media, maybe they didn't like it then. But, but I think it's I, pretty, pretty on the on the. What's the word? On the, not on, on the, the button on the nose. <laughs> no, not one of those. Yeah. Yeah, but it's 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 <laughs> sort of based on a real life event, isn't it? I found this out yesterday. Yeah. I'm just looking it up now. It's a guy called. W. Floyd Collins, who in 1925 was trapped inside Sand Cave, Kentucky, following a landslide. I'm reading this from Wikipedia. I'm not actually recalling this, guys, by the way. <laughs> a Louisville newspaper, the Courier Journal, jumped on the story and dispatched reporter William Burt Miller to the scene. Miller's enterprising coverage turned the tragic episode into a national event and earned the writer a Pulitzer Prize. Well, they talk um, about that, don't they? They even yeah. talk about, but don't they talk about that in the in the film itself? Well, that that was just because he got sued for this, or the or the film company did. Oh, that's it. Yeah, um, so. they, got sued, they got sued for it and had to pay out, some, you know, several thousand dollars mm-hmm. um, at the time. You know, that one of the defences was that a, it wasn't um, directly; it was a combination of a number of of ideas. Mm-hmm. But they actually reference it in the film. Um, this other so, story that uh, so you know it's it's kind of like the um, thing with the life of Brian where you know within the film Brian is stood there in the audience watching Jesus so how can it be this that this is yes. trying to make out this is about it and it's so so that was one of the defences I mean they had to pay out money unfortunately um, the defence was it was one. historical I think is the actual defence they used it's historical apparently yeah. is yeah. the reasoning they used and then there was another one a few years just prior to this where a, a young girl was trapped in a in a landslide or a mine or something and then in both cases they died you know both of the victims died but spoiler um it is very true to what the movie unfolds mm. this is wilder's first critical and commercial flop apparently but it's also the first time that he is writer producer and director which we always associate him with don't we guys we don't just say written by billy wilder or directed by billy wilder we mm. just have him as this this auteur that encompasses every single role mm. and this is the first time he done it and it, it really sort of like knocked him for six i think that 
after the success of like Raymond Landing last weekend and Sunset Boulevard, which was massive, to go and produce something that also had the biggest external set apparently non-combat set you know that whole thing yeah. all that that was built thousand extras as well. yeah. yeah it's it's a massive undertaking when you think about it this thing on, on the surface it just looks like it's kirk douglas and the guy trapped in the well and a few other uh sort of like supporting cast but as you just said it's a cast of thousands really when you look at it it's huge yeah yeah and they did have to rebuild the the, the facade that was um where the entrance into this sort of caving structure, which is like the adobe building fronts that there was, they had to rebuild that set. Of, I don't know, it was something like twenty or thirty thousand dollars at the time that that spent on rebuilding that, rather than being able to use the the actual site itself because it was going to you know, destruct, be destructive. So that's where some of the money went and some of the um, the time and energy went into. But it, so it was quite a big, it was a big production. And as you say, it was the first one that he was given that overall control of, um, which we obviously think is giving him overall control is a good idea because even this one, which is considered a lack of success, was actually a success eventually. But previously, this is the first time given the, the reception of um, his last film, he suddenly got that control. Um, and thankfully, he retained it in future films because that would have been bad if the t- if the Jews this is an excuse to take it off him. Just to, just to mention one thing, I won't go on a tangent, but I was talking to you earlier before we started about this film Sorcerer. That's basically what happened with Friedkin. He had a French connection and Exorcist, and then they gave him control. Mm. But his film took two years to make and cost a fortune and, and nearly bankrupted them. So I think. I think they are always very wary, aren't they, of giving directors too much control because the director is going to think artistically and they're thinking commercially. And obviously, you've got to find a balance somewhere, haven't you? <laughs> I, I think in the modern era, I, I think in the modern era, if you're looking back over films that have been done in the past, one of the benchmarks for deciding on whether um, the film is iconic or not is whether it's been um, you know, ripped off for a Simpsons episode. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And this one has, isn't it? And this one has, yeah. Yeah, Dear Lord, before we peel the foil back from your bounty, we ask you to watch over little Timmy O'Toole trapped in that well. (laughs) Bart, what's wrong with you? Yeah, that Timmy is a real hero. How do you mean, Dad? Well, he fell down a well and can't get out. How does that make him a hero? Well, it's more than you did. And finally... Channel 6's own Krusty the Clown has gathered members of the entertainment community, who normally steer clear of fashionable causes, for a video called We're Sending Our Love Down the Well. I wanted to do something to help that boy, so I called my good friend Sting. He said, Krusty, when do you need me? I said Thursday. He said, I'm busy Thursday. I said, what about Friday? He said, Friday's worse than Thursday. Then he said, how about Saturday? I said, fine. True story. Yeah, I used to open for Krusty in uh, 69. In fact, he fired me, as I recall. (laughs) But this isn't about show business. This is about some kid down a hole or or something. And we've all got to do what we can. There's a hole in my heart as deep as a well for that poor little boy who's stuck halfway to hell. Though we can't get him out, we'll do the next best thing. We'll go on TV and sing, sing, sing. And we're sending our love down the well. All the way down. We're sending our love 
Rusty, what are your plans for the royalties? Well, we gotta pay for promotion, shipping, distribution. You know, those limos out back, they aren't free. Whatever's left, we throw down the well. I'll just say one thing about the title. As you were saying earlier, they changed mm. it to Big Carnival, which is a, a tad misleading. Um, mm. Although we've seen that before. We did How I Won the War. Do you remember they had John Lennon on the front cover mm. of the DVD with a <laughs> lollipop in his mouth, even though he hardly, he's hardly in it? But, uh, yeah. Just, well, the, just, working, uh, the, the working title for this was Human Interest Story. That's it, yeah. Oh, well, I discovered something else. I, I don't know whether the whether the... That phrase was something that people have said before, but there's two songs called Ace in the Hole. Yeah. Uh, one is a Cole Porter. And the other one was, I don't know who the writer was, but Lonnie Donegan, the big inspiration to the Beatles, Scott. Uh, he, uh, there's the link, thank you. Two in two minutes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and the lyrics kind of have like, life is a gamble, you've got to play your cards right, you've got to have an ace in the hole. So was this a phrase that existed? Because it's, yes. it's, really, it's a good uh, title because it's got the sort of cards analogy, hasn't it? It is. It's, I mentioned to Paul, my usual sort of co-host on this show last night, that we're going to be reviewing Ace in the Hole. And I was telling him, mm. I said, oh, this is going to be a great movie. You'd have loved it, mate. You know, he'd have really taken an interest in this. And as mm. soon as I said the word Ace in the Hole, he went, what's it about gambling? Obviously, because of yeah. the, you know, the poker reference. It's the, you know, the ace that's hidden. You stick it up your sleeve. Yeah, you have it yeah. up your sleeve or something. Yeah. And it actually means it's like an advantage, isn't it, that you have over an opponent or a rival. Yeah. And, and that's literally the theme that runs through because Douglas has got this advantage over all the other journalists. That's it. Most of which he's worked with previously because he's been sacked from like, was it 14 newspapers or something? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then when the journalists turn up, it's like sneering down at them because like, yeah, yeah I don't want to work for you guys. You know, look, I've got the, I'm top of the tree here. I'm running this show. Yeah. Not the story that he's running the town almost controlling everything from the, you know, the, the femme fatale to the, to the sheriff. Yeah. It's just sort of pure charisma, isn't it? He's just got more... You... Oh, I was going to tell you something. Um, I'd forgotten about this. You know, Kirk Douglas played McMurphy in the play of One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest. Yeah. And when I was watching this, I was thinking, you could see him as McMurphy because he's just got more energy than everyone else. He's got more chat than <laughs> everyone else. And he's got this way of, you know, in One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest, McMurphy sort of galvanises everybody and yeah. get everybody energised. At the beginning, when he's in the office in Albuquerque, and it's obviously very sleepy and nothing happens, he kind of has that way of just exciting everybody. And I, swagger, I can totally it? see why how he could be McMurphy then. Because yeah. he was really upset because Michael Douglas, his son, produced it, but uh, he didn't get the role. I can't remember why, actually, but they got Jack he, Nicholson. He bought it, didn't he? Originally got the rights to it, didn't he? Back yeah. in the 60s and then produced it, didn't he? I think on Broadway or off-Broadway. Um, I could totally see it because, yeah, one of the reasons he got sacked was he, he slept with the editor's wife or something like that. And that's like when McMurphy, I could swear on this podcast, can't I? He goes, uh, yes. Yeah, the problem is, he says to the doctor, I, I just fight and fuck too much. <laughs> <laughs> and you get that you get that sense. But I think Kurt Douglas is brilliant for just the energy. You know, he's got way more energy than everyone else. And, you know, he's got more charisma. Yeah. So it was good. Yeah. It was great. Stephen. Yeah, there's a. Yeah, the, absolutely. I mean, you know, thankfully, in this film, he pointed out his new boss, the new editor of, of the Albuquerque uh, newspaper, points out how old his, his wife is and how she'd be very flattered oh, for the Because, <laughs> uh, you know, she's a, I think, uh, you know, what he says, a, a 67-year-old grandmother or something, of, of, of 12 or something. He's like, like, he's like uh, how about it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah she'd be very flattered by the attention, yeah. <laughs> the thing with this film is, for, for me, and it's not... I, 
think this is my personal interpretation of the whole thing rather than it being something that's really an orthodox opinion but for me i mean weirdly for somebody who's an atheist i, I see this as, as quite thematically sort of biblical in in some ways it's a bit odd because uh, going beyond just the, the fact that there's references to snakes and and stuff and the truth and and things in there is is quite easy but and the fact that it's in the desert and it draws all these people to have basically the time of their lives uh, some kind of paradise you know when they're coming away from particularly the guy who was coming from the um all pacific insurance company which is a, a thread coming from it's the same company in, in um yes double indemnity isn't it but yeah i think that what you were just saying there about the kirk douglas character chuck is almost like a false prophet or a devil sort of character he's been reborn himself in a, in a way which is is quite a you know biblical he's turning up and, and putting himself across as having more virtuous views um and been looking like he's a savior for for other people particularly the the trapped man and you know he's corrupting other people like the lawman and um and the wife particularly in turning her uh, in, into a different way and you know ultimately going through all of that in in falling from the grace that he's built up for himself as this you know false prophet um, and literally, you know, at the end of the film, he literally falls, doesn't he? So, um, <laughs> yeah. so all of this is, you know, for, for me, I don't, I don't know at what point when of watching this previously, this sort of came as an idea in my my head. And as as I say, it's probably just me attaching meaning where it isn't, to be perfectly honest. But certainly it, now, when I do watch it, it's it's one of the sort of things I'm, I, I just see without any ability to resist it, to be honest. That's interesting, yeah. And all, in, in all those ones where someone sells their soul to the devil, like, you know, the old Robert Johnson thing, yeah. he got amazing ability. They always have amazing energy, like um, the remake of Cape Fear. You know, there's a theory about that. My friend Rob Ager mm. has a theory that um, Katie's actually a sort of avenging angel because Nick Nolte's sinning, isn't he? He's cheating on his wife with that young girl. Yeah. And they're always, whenever someone in these stories is infused with the power of the Lord or the power of the devil, they always have great energy. And it is, if we're going down this road, it is quite supernatural in a way how he just commandeers everything he, everywhere he goes, he just commandeers it within five minutes, doesn't he? It's amazing, isn't it? He's just got control of everything. Almost that's instantly. like I said, from, you know, the, the yeah. woman that's running the diner to, right up to the sheriff. You know, he actually, yeah. it's not even a town as such, is it? But he creates a whole sort of like community yeah. that is, is just making money. And he is sitting at the top of the tree within a day you know literally within a day once that first tourist turns up with the family in the, yeah. in the station wagon or the or the, the trailer it's almost like he's a cult he's a cult leader isn't he? he's the cult of Tatum. pretty much pretty yeah. much you know it's a great it's a great uh, yeah it's a great kenneth williams once said he's one of the biggest cults you'll ever meet and the biggest cults you'll yeah. ever meet cult yeah and he is a, he is a bit of a cult let's be honest <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i think all the characters in this film are, are nearly all terrible people really there's a couple i mean obviously the 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 parents that's very moving isn't it you've got the the mother praying and yeah yeah well yeah that's that's the first time you get any inkling that something's actually going on isn't it because they pull into this town because they're on the way to the what's the rattlesnake thing they're going to the killing rattlesnakes or hunting rattlesnakes or something what is it rattlesnake hunt isn't it the rattlesnake yeah yeah (laughs) you know this could be a pretty good story chuck don't sell it short it's quite a sight, a thousand rattlers in the underbrush and a lot of men smoking them out, bashing in their heads. Big deal. 
thousand rattlers in the underbrush. Give me just 50 of them loose in Albuquerque. Like that leopard in Oklahoma City. The whole town in panic. Deserted streets, barricaded houses. They're evacuating the children. Every man is armed. 50 killers on the prowl, 50. One by one, they start hunting them down. They get 10, 20. It's building, they get 40, 45, they get 49. Where's the last rattler? In a kindergarten? In a church? In a crowded elevator? Where? Give up. Where? In my desk drawer, Fan. Stashed away, only nobody knows it, see? The story's good for another three days. Then when I'm good and ready, we come out with a big extra. Sun Bulletin Snags number 50. Where do you get those ideas? Herbie boy, how long did you go to that... Uh, of journalism. Three years. Three years down the drain. Me, I didn't go to any college, but I know what makes a good story, because before I ever worked on a paper, I sold them on a street corner. And you know the first thing I found out? Bad news sells best. Because good news is no news. Better get some gas. And they pull into this back edge of the desert sort of like town and it's literally just fortune isn't it it's just luck that he comes across this thing and mm. you get this whole build up don't you because a whole year goes past which i didn't realize until watching it this time round. Mm. He's, he's working for the albuquerque sun courier or whatever the name of the paper is for a whole year and, and the thing i noticed as well just going back to you know his bravado and how brash he is at the beginning how cocky you know lighting the cigarette on the typewriter which is amazing you know which yeah yeah he did that he, he says some comment to the editor that you know he's had so, certain things said to him but never by a guy that's wearing belt and suspenders you know somebody who's like yeah. doubly safe sort of thing the next scene which is a year later douglas is wearing a belt and suspenders yeah, yeah. So he's, yeah. you know, it's taken a year, but he has fallen into, you know, the ways and the means of this backwater town in Albuquerque and this, this newspaper. And, and I just thought that was like, is that significant? I don't know. Is that just an indication that he's, you know, become so ingrained and entrenched in, in, in this little sort of like hick town that he has think, actually become a belt and suspenders guy? You know, I think, yeah, I think it is. I mean, you know, even to the stage where you think, for a moment that he's been caught out drinking on the job, which yeah. you know, alcohol was banned from the office, and it turns now, mm-hmm. it, you know, just shipping a bottle, shipping a bottle, yeah. Which you know, <laughs> careful how you you enunciate that. Um, <laughs> but um, what you're going back to what you were saying about you know turning where it all sort of kicks off with regards to the um, turning up at the diner gas station mm. and suddenly realizing there's a, a lead for a story there and the the praying mother triggering off the the photographer assistant um that there's something going on you know again that that ties back to what i was uh, saying before pressing this this idea that i have of the the biblical thing i mean this is you know the parents of the trap block to some extent give up their religiosity of praying so much and, and stuff and they put their trust in him um, instead has been the you know to save their son rather than the, the prayers, prayers mm. being you know relying upon their prayers being answered and you know as you say he's he's trying to pull himself out the hole of being in this backwater and having you know sold himself for 
initially I think it was $60 and it went down to to 45 no it was 50 dollars and it went down to 45 then i think it went down to 30 and then um <laughs> eventually when the guy uh decides he is gonna hire him he tells him he get, he's getting 60 because that's what everybody gets yeah and that <laughs> that and, and and that i think is although it's more money i think that is that is actually a bigger slap in the face for him because mm. being told you're getting the same as everybody else regardless rather than you know you're getting paid people get yeah. paid um a different amount based upon their perceived worth it does i think bring him down to being uh, amongst equals in that way even though he considers himself very much to be not to be anybody's equal yeah I, I, it's it is it is indicative i think uh, you know seeing that year on and it's not immediate that you realize it's a year on but when mm. you know it gets said that he's a year on and he's still stuck there in in albuquerque probably the longest he's been in any job Mm. Um, if you, yeah, yeah. you judge his history correctly, and he's he's literally trapped himself. Um, and the the rattlesnake hunt is the best he can, <laughs> best avenue for a story. I love I love his entrance where he's being his car's being towed and he's in the car because <laughs> it sort of tells you two things: he's down on his luck, but he's also yep. quite grand and he's used to people sort of doing stuff for him. Because later on he's sort of ordering people around the whole time. I thought that was really good. Um, well, he's sat in the he's sat in the car, he's smoking a cigar, yeah. and he's reading reading the newspaper um, as if he's been chauffeur driven. Absolutely. That's it. That's um, it. So, yeah, absolutely. So rather than you know, rather than somebody who would, normally you would you would go and sit in the cab with the person towing the vehicle, not only because it's safer, because you but also because you wouldn't want to be um, on display like that. But he obviously has a different view of it. He wants to be seen. Yeah. So yes. you're right. I think that's typical Wilder, isn't it? That the introduction of the major character is always something a bit special. You know, oh, well, first, Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> the first time we meet Marilyn Monroe in some like your heart is walking down the um the railway platform, isn't it, with the steam yeah. blowing yeah. up her dress and she's that's like, oh, so she walks past. You know, yeah. it's it's that sort of like Wilder entrance. You know, and, reminds me of how I first met you, Scott. Yeah, yeah walking, <laughs> walking down a platform, <laughs> yeah, with high heels. Scared, scared going up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, station. Yeah. it's it's amazing though isn't it that kirk douglas i mean the supporting cast i don't know about you guys but i didn't really recognize any of the other actors or actresses in there there was nobody a list in this movie and kirk douglas carries this movie head and shoulders from the first minute pretty much I mean, did you yeah. recognize anybody else guys from anything else i thought i recognized is that jan jan sterling is that right I yeah. thought I recognised. I thought she looked so familiar. I look at her yeah. filmography. I've seen loads of stuff, and I haven't seen anything. No, she looks like someone else that I can't think of. Mm. But um, she was great. Very, very distinctive. I was very attracted to her. I must admit. Maybe that says something about me. The old femme go. fatale. That's you, isn't she, it? She yeah. played the femme fatale well, but <laughs> yeah, not not the greatest um, person in the world because she's pretty quick to uh, want to disown uh, Leo. I would have liked to have maybe known a bit more about why why their marriage was so unhappy. But, you know, we get that idea. Has, has anybody got any sort of redeemable qualities in this? <laughs> well, because is there anybody well, the, we can root for here apart from the guy that's trapped? Even him is is thieving um, ancient artifacts. <laughs> yes, and, um, so, yeah. uh, and it's not the first time he's done it. He's he's just had to go deeper than than previously. The answer to both your your, your questions you, you've just asked with regards to anybody you might recognise from elsewhere mm. and whether anybody actually is a good person uh, yeah. in this film. The newspaper editor who 
won't print anything that's not true. He is somebody that at least is a good person in this and um, mm. an honourable person. And I've seen him in some things before. I believe he was in, in WDMT. Yeah, yeah, Well, Mr. Boot, I was passing through Albuquerque. Had breakfast here. Read your paper. Thought you might be interested in my reaction. You bet I am. Well, sir, it made me throw up. I don't want you to think I expected the New York Times. But even for Albuquerque, this is pretty Albuquerque. All right. Here's your nickel back. Now, what's all this about my making $200 a week? Apparently, you're not familiar with my name. Can't say that I am. That's because you don't get the Eastern papers out here. I thought maybe once in a while somebody would toss one out of the super chief and you might have seen my byline. Charles Statham? Work in New York, Chicago, Detroit. What about the 200? I was coming to that. Mr. Boot, I'm a $250 a week newspaper man. I can be had for 50. Why are you so good to me? I know newspapers backward, forward, and sideways. I can write them, edit them, print them, wrap them, and sell them. Don't need anybody right now. I can handle big news and little news. And if there's no news, I'll go out and bite a dog. Make it 45. What makes you so cheap? A fair question, considering I've been top man wherever I've worked. You'll be glad to know that I've been fired from 11 papers with a total circulation of 7 million for reasons with which I don't want to bore you. Go ahead, bore me. I'm a pretty good liar. I've done a lot of lying in my time. I've lied to men who wear belts. I've lied to men who wear suspenders. But I'd never be so stupid as to lie to a man who wears both belt and suspenders. Uh, how's that again? You strike me as a cautious man, a man who checks and double checks. So I'll tell you why I was fired. In New York, a story of mine brought on a libel suit. In Chicago, I started something with a publisher's wife. In Detroit, I was caught drinking out of season. In Cleveland? I get the picture. Now then, I find myself in Albuquerque with no money. A burnt-out bearing, bad tires, and a lousy reputation. Bad tires can be dangerous. I've only one chance to get back where I belong. To land a job on a small-town paper like yours and wait and hope and pray for something big to break. Something I can latch on to. So I recognise his face, but certainly not even a B-list, I don't think. He's still, no. um, I think he's still C-list supporting actor, never really mm. um, the, the lead either, I think. Um, he's, he's got a cracking CV, by the way, Stephen. You just mentioned double indemnity. As well as that and Ace in the Hole, he was in His Girl Friday, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, mm. Sullivan's Travels, The Thin Man, Miracle on 34th Street, Going My Way, amongst many others. He's just one of those guys that is always there but not recognised sort of thing. You're quite right. It's it's just one of those dependables, isn't he, I think? Mm. Yeah, he's just got a, a face there that, you know, to play a character for, a few, you know, as um, a side character to provide a bit of colour in mm. there and, and stability but yeah there's nobody else really that um that stood out um i wouldn't say for me i mean even as you said john sterling although you know gets the 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 next top billing after after kirk douglas she still i, I don't think uh you know she no, um, was massive really yeah cut a um, job movies mate and amongst other things so. uh, i mean you could see her getting a whole career up playing those femme fatales couldn't you but didn't seem to happen. It's what Stephen said at the know. beginning. It's his film noir in the desert, isn't it? And you've mm. always got the blonde femme fatale, and she is it, obviously. She is realising mm. the whole the whole idea of femme fatale, you know. It's it, and it's great the way 
you know, Kirk Douglas slaps some sense into her at some point, which is a, another typical sort of like film noir trope, isn't it, as well? You know, yeah. eating up. Yeah. Them, yeah. Stephen, you're going to. I just, just realised just realize this is the second time I brought I brought to the table for this show a, a film noir in in the desert because I brought um, Bad Day at Black Rock. Uh, Bad Day at Black Rock, didn't I? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> another little running theme. Um, Oh dear! I'll have to find a third one. To... <laughs> I bet we can. I bet we can. What were you going to say about people with unredeemable qualities or something? You were going to add to that. Just saying that, that yeah, that, I mean, the obviously the parents are, you know, uh, but they're really you hardly see them much um, at mm. all. So the, you know, the editor of the provincial newspaper and 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 some of the other staff in that room are, are, are redeemable. You could argue that. The photographer, um, you know, Herbie, the, the photographer mm. assistant guy, that he gets swayed by Kirk Douglas's character Chuck um, into, you know, doing what he thinks is a newspaper person's role as far as chasing leads. And, and he doesn't seem fully on board, though, with the sort of taking advantage of it and actually manipulating it and elongating it. Mm. And he does seem to have a bit more conscience, even though he's still led down that path. Um, so I think he at the end, you know, is is comes back um, to his original ethics. Um, but certainly for a while in the film, he's he's been badly led, so he's not completely innocent. Yeah, because he comes up with his own idea. He says, uh, "Oh, why don't we get an Indian medicine man to come in and and <laughs> you know get rid of the curse?" Yeah, yeah. We have to talk, of course, about the. Uh, predictable uh, stereotypical treatment of the native americans as well the guy the copy well, guy at the beginning i'm going to say there aren't any in actually standing yeah. there it's, it's, it's again people of different ethnicities playing the the, the parts <laughs> which is uh, quite untypical of, of hollywood at the time oh yeah it never happened did it it was uh, the one standing by the hole at the beginning when he's at the no top. the guy at the newspaper that he first oh, meets right. when he walks in has got the long black hair like a, looking like a real native american was it was he sicilian or something Stephen? yes yeah <laughs> oh is that when kirk douglas goes how yeah he's actually oh, yeah. and he made a career out of playing native americans yeah. this, this italian guy yeah <laughs> And he had, was he, he did have some sort of native, Iron Eyes Cody. There we go. And he wasn't even American at all. It was Sicilian. You know? I, I just loved it this time round. Mm. I'd watched it first time probably about 10 years ago. And I just thought, yep, I can see why that's a great movie. Another one off the Billy Wilder list. No major rush to go back to it. But having watched it sort of yesterday, my God, this is a top 50 movie for me. It's it's incredible. It's just the, the way that, as I said earlier, that Kirk Douglas carries the weight of this movie on his shoulders mm. without faltering throughout. I mean, mm. yes, he's a despicable, unlikable character, but then that's what makes the movie likable to me. You've got such great writing from Billy Wilder. Some of the, some of the lines, I mean, I'm going to be including snatches of dialogue throughout this because i was jotting down yeah as i was watching <laughs> rattle them out mate because i've i've jotted down a few but i'm going to include them as like sound bites but what stood out for you mate some of them oh there's a few um i think it's in the albuquerque he says uh, if there's no news i'll go out and bite a dog uh, yes yeah <laughs> and then he sort of inverts the no news is good news he says good news is no news or bad news sells best and then the thing about um one man is one man trapped is a, is a tragedy and 84 or 284 doesn't mean anything, which makes me in mind of that 
horrible quote of Joseph Stalin. One person dead is a tragedy. A million is a statistic. That's it. So yeah. it's the idea that if you can isolate, if you can isolate one person, then the public can get personally invested. Yeah. Um, oh, and ju- wow. during uh, the U.S. shameful invasion of Iraq, which they seem to have got away with. <laughs> I re- no, I'm even making a serious point. Uh, but uh, no, I remember in the newspaper, this really made me angry. They zeroed in on one Iraqi boy who'd been injured. Yeah. So it was this story that everyone could follow. But it, it gives the terrible idea that, that maybe these are isolated incidents. But I, I thought all the stuff about the tabloids is really interesting. And I love the character. I thought his name was Booth, but it's Boot, isn't it? Boot, The, yes. the editor, yeah. Because he, he knows exactly what's going on. They have that great debate about um, journalism because... I think we're all from England and really the big change that came in England was when the sun sort of rose to prominence. Mm. About 69, I think, it became a tabloid and it's completely yes. changed. And in America now, I mean, TV news, if you look at CNN or Fox, really, it's just it's entertainment. Yeah. Uh, I'd like yeah. to recommend a book uh, you can get as an audio book as well to you and the listeners, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Mm. And it talks about how. I mean, it's American because the guy's American, but how we change, they change from a book culture to a TV culture and how attention spans have been shortened. And we live in this culture now where everything has to be sound bites. So this film is really old school journalism against Chuck Tatum, you know, where just the power of his charisma and the power of what he says is the truth. It's also so relevant today, though, this whole thing with with COVID-19 and uh, and the way that, not so much manipulating the news but sort of like twisting it slightly that mm. you actually really doubt that you're being told the truth sometimes because it's mm. how believable is that person on the screen you know a lot of it is down to personality look how people like say robert peston has actually become a personality rather than a reporter now you mm. know and given his own show and, and so much balls that he's actually just called Peston, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's selling the person rather than the content. Of course. And that's what's and, happened with politicians as well. Mm. I mean, they, they have to be personalities. I mean, whatever you think about Keir Starmer, I was watching a channel Four news um, interview with Kathy Newman, I think her name is. Mm. And they talked about policies for a bit. And then at the end she said, uh, Mrs. Oh, Sir Starmer, whatever he is. Sir Starmer. Sir Starmer, yeah. Um, what do you think about the public thinking that you're boring? And he looks at her and he's like, what the fuck has that got to do with anything? Like, yeah. And I know, it. unfortunately, it has, you know. Mm. Uh, so it becomes about personality. Yeah, you're right. But this that's what I loved about this film. Like, I like the film anyway, but it, it's so relevant. I mean, you think this is 70 years ago. Yeah. And the, the transients, the, like Scott said, the transients has, have, news i mean ties in especially now because we've got news feeds and twitter and facebook and stuff and as mm. soon as something is as soon as something has dropped off the bottom of your screen mm-hmm. it, that's that it's even quicker to be to be old news than it was in the old days and i mean going back to what you were saying about quotes from the film mm. um i just managed to find the one that was um relevant to that that i was going to mention so it's, it's good timing mm. he says it's a good it's a good story today. Tomorrow they'll wrap fish in it. Yeah, yeah that's it. You know, yeah, it's it's something that we've had in this country for a while. You know, you used to say that. You know, it. it you know, it's news today. Tomorrow, chip paper. Yeah, that's and it, yeah. Um, and it is. You know, and that's what we have have now even more so that it's not even staying in the news for a day. Now things are disappearing. You know, within hours, and this is why. 
whether you're talking our former prime minister or former presidents of the United States or whatever, they can do so many outlandish things now that the, that mm. just one of those things would have been career ending. That mm. you can't keep up with how many things that have been done multi- multiple in a day. You're finding out about things that should be career ending, and yeah. you don't remember that. You don't remember the last one or the one before that, um, because Very you should, you know, that that yeah. And, well, and I mean, that's unfortunately the way it's now working with with all sorts of news. Um, and this, as as um, Anthony has said, the commentary with regards to um, how people view news with, a, with it being um, a certain number of fatalities being a statistic rather than human interest. And um, yeah. certainly we are we know and have known for a long time that you're going to get um 20,000 people die in a, in a flood in, in Pakistan yes. and barely makes the news. But if you get one person in this country um, or when airplanes crash, they, they talk about how many Britons were on, on board, not yes. how many people died. Yes. You know, yes. That, that yes. Is, is the, it's the focus you're trying to, you know, understandably in some ways you're trying to relate it to people's lives um, mm. themselves. But it's not a broad enough that you're going to take an interest in in the whole of humanity, you've got to find a link to it being an individual that you could know. And that's heavily commented on and pointed towards with this film. And as Anthony, or, or Scott, I can't remember if one of you said, this is showing the move on from the old school ju- perception of journalism. I don't think it was ever that, that way, but the perception mm. of journalism in the old days was that it was just reporting the truth um, to it now, you know, now being a media game of manipulation in order to to get headlines and and get readers and and make money so relevant so relevant yeah. today isn't it i mean this hasn't dated at all this well the, well the other thing about it we have to say is that okay we can say tatum is bad for setting the situation up but the public are totally on board with it and you think yeah <laughs> and i mean that this this could happen i mean I, I was watching this and thinking a lot of it is symbolic i don't know whether it's supposed to we're supposed to be thinking this could happen, but I mean, if you look at the way the way they set it up, they um, obviously they get burger stands and everything. They they have a big sign saying the Leo Minosa Relief Fund, so <laughs> everyone can feel good about it. Are we giving to charity? Someone composes a song. He's yes. like, Leo, da, da, da. you know, he's got and then like, sells <laughs> for twenty five cents sells the, the the sheet music for it. Yeah, that's it, yeah. And then as we were saying, uh, I think it was before we started recording, yeah, the price goes up. If you notice every day the price, 50 cents, $1 yeah. entry. And well, everyone's into it. And uh, just, again, I mean, I was part of the Iraq uh, war protests in London. And unfortunately, uh, protests often turn into parties. Right. You know, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And th- that's what this become, you know. And it, well, it's, pretty, at, it's pretty realistic, really. Look at the sheriff, like graffitiing the whole of the rock face with re-elect sheriff, whatever his name was, right across yeah. there, like ten foot high lettering. And, and then, yeah, and then yeah. goes, and then goes on the radio interview to say, "I don't want people to be thinking about this incident um, when considering my re-election. I'm just doing my duty." Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 right, okay, okay, yeah. But it's a power of words, isn't it? I mean, uh, even to be honest, Kirk Douglas gets a. The femme fatale into bed by uh, what he wrote about her because she's so impressed by it, isn't she? Exactly. He's got exclusive rights, so he can write whatever he wants. People are going to more or less believe it. So he's creating, and then she has to act 
based on the way that he's portrayed her rather than the other way around. Yeah. You know what I mean? He said, I've written you up as a grieving widow. You've got to start being a grieving widow. Don't look too happy at the fact exactly. you're making a thousand, yeah. a thousand a day because she's she's absolutely raking it in. It's uh, no, it's fascinating. Really good. Yeah, she doesn't go to church. It bags her nylons. I think that was one of yeah. the lines she said. And then he says, have you had enough sleep? And she said, oh, I've been asleep for five years, like commenting <laughs> on her marriage. So, yeah. I was watching this and, and talking about it being relevant and sort of so sort of like in the public minds today. You, you know, that that thankfully not tragic event in was it Malaysia or Thailand where the, the, the football team was trapped underground? The kids. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thailand, and I, yeah, Thailand. yeah. And I, I watched the documentary, which is amazing. If you haven't seen the documentary, and I watched the Ron Howard movie, The 13, I think it was called or something, which is very good. But the documentary is so much better. And, and I was watching this thinking I was just praying that there wasn't this type of journalism going on, that there were people mm. there waiting for tragedy, expecting tragedy, because it is such an uplifting story of, mm. of triumph and success against the odds that happened in that whole event. I, was, I think I, the bigger problem with that one was that um, it was people like Elon Musk trying to take some kind of credit. halo halo credit mm-hmm. or trying to you know take away from it and make it all about them um, yeah. and i think that was where it was more so than the the journalist side um, yeah. that judging from what i you know i recall mm. what about the um was it the chilean miners what was yeah. that yeah yeah that, yeah yeah i mean you think you hate to think I mean, you don't want to be cynical but I mean, how do we know that story wasn't spun out i mean we don't know do we yeah, who knows? You know, we don't they, know. We're not in newsrooms. And they did the same thing. They drilled another hole, didn't they, to get the Chilean miners? It's God. the same situation. No, don't. Yeah. don't so Can you imagine if you go back to the newspaper reports and yeah, and you find oh God, it's exactly the same. They'll be out in sixty-two hours. Oh no, it'll take a week. Oh shit. <laughs> You're thinking, oh God, please don't be too near well, the truth. Well, one of one of the one of the guys didn't want to come out because his 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 mistress and his wife had got talking to each other. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> I've, oh, I've just no. read something in in the trivia on IMDb, which is one of the things I love about Hollywood and, and movies is when a movie actually sort of exists in the same universe as another movie. Tarantino does it quite often with like Vince mm. Vega and you know Bean Brothers with whatever you know all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah, right. Vega. You know the the family that turn up in the in the big RV. And they're being mm. interviewed by the reporter. And he said, well, we were just passing through. And we heard, we thought we'd go and have a look at all this. Stuff. He works for a company called, now Stephen might recognize this. He works for a company called the Pacific All Risk Insurance Company. Mm. That's the insurance company in Dublin Indemnity. Yeah, yeah. I think we already said that. <laughs> I yeah, I mentioned that. Did you? Sorry. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you were going to say work for the Joy Club. That would, <laughs> that would have been uh, a whole other. Sorry, Steve. Yes. That. The princess must not listen. No, no, it's not. Uh, it does really. It does. Yeah. Um, should we start again? Um, um, no, and, and this is and and this is um, one of the things that we we do like to have that the you know that directors bring in you know the same name of a, of a of a company or there's uh, a yeah, newspaper yeah. or there's names that get get brought up or whether it's the same you know military company that somebody was a, a former member of and so was somebody else and there's all, mm. all these things 
putting it in that it, these things are existing in the same universe, as it were, um, yeah. you know, do is things that people like us um, do delight in because uh, you know, we like to we like to think that at, at some point, you know, these, you know, two two people from different films could end up um, have actually bumped into each other on, on yeah. uh, the street sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a nice nice little Easter egg, as it were, that exactly. he's dropped in there. I think uh, mm. uh, didn't Spielberg do that? Is it? It's Sugarland Express, and it's uh, not Jules. I think it might be Jewel. The same couple turn up. Do they? And they kind of reminded me of the couple in this film, actually. This sort of <laughs> couple of sort of ordinary Americans of a certain age, sort yeah. of driving up, quite curious to see what was going on. I wonder if that was even Spielberg. Spielberg was even calling back to this. It's a big Stephen King thing, isn't it? Setting the you know in Castle Rock, or, or yeah. you know, certain characters are related amongst like Cujo mm. and you know dead zone and things like that they're all sort of like interlinked yeah you get it a lot get a lot in sci-fi obviously because of you know yeah like star wars with them having when they have the galactic senate they you know you can if you look really carefully in freeze frame you can see that one of the races there is is et I, um, yeah oh that's it yeah, and, yeah. And, and stuff like that there's a and all the Marvel films have things scattered all over those as well and, and things. Oh, yeah. and what was the one I, I really enjoyed? Oh, um, in the sequel to, to, to Deadpool, um, the young lad, the New Zealand lad, um, when he's saying to about um, having a, a call sign between the, him and the um, juggernaut, and he's going, oh, we need a secret secret call sign. Oh, I know. Kaka, kaka. He says, no, that's stupid, that's stupid. And that's a call back to um, Hunt for the Wilder people that he was in. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, you know, little things like that, you know, geeks like us absolutely delight in, and other people will just either, either not be aware of or will just think, why is that why included funny? It, yeah. and, and that's just, why Why do you think that's good, isn't it, you know? Well, I've, I've got a little. Um, can I give you a little quiz question for you and yeah. the listeners? Here we go. Do you know that film, uh, Open Water, about those two divers, based on true story, you get yeah, got the, left behind by their boat? The shark thing, yes. Yeah, the shark thing. Yeah. When they discover, because it, it's not until like the next morning that they discover, they realise they've left because they've messed up the the counting of the the recount when the scuba divers come back on the boat. Mm. And when they find their ID cards, their names are Kintner and Watkins. No. So what's that from? Come on. Well, Alex, Alex Kintner is the first victim or the second victim, isn't he, in Jaws? He's the king yeah, and, of Milo, isn't he? Yeah. And Christine Watkins is the first Christine victim. Watkins is the first victim, yeah. Yeah, so that was a nice touch. I love all that stuff. Yeah. There was one I watched last weekend, and it's it's sort of similar, but it also fucks your brain up a little bit. You know the recent Halloween trilogy? Where that you know mm. they're sort of going back forty years afterwards, and Laurie Strode is taking on Michael Myers once again. In the first of that trilogy, which is is called Halloween, I believe, there's a shot. I think it's a in a police station or something, and he's watching the original Halloween movie from seventy ah. eight, which doesn't make sense because the characters are actually from that movie in this one. It's really bizarre. Well, when we did uh, Strangers on a Train, I don't know if I, I probably mentioned this at the time, the sequel is Throw Mama from the Train. Yes. But he gets the idea of the double murder in Throw Mama from the Train by watching Strangers on a Train in the exactly. cinema. Exactly. Which is brilliant. That's such a great touch. <laughs> yeah. Is there in one of the Halloween films, isn't there, um, I could be misremembering, um, but isn't the one where watching, there's an old, old episode of Star Trek? Being shown on the screen in one of the scenes, 
and obviously with the oh with the, the Mike, Mike, yeah with the with with the Michael Myers mask being a, a William Shatner um, mask there's some tie in there uh, well. <laughs> you've got parodies of all sorts as well yeah, yeah. Uh, did somebody say this has, this has been parodied by the Simpsons yes of course it, of course it has why am I even asking that question yeah. it has arrived yeah, um, t- Timmy, o- Timmy O'Toole I think is the character's never stuck down the well which it isn't actually down it isn't actually stuck down a well it's just um, using a, um, a CB radio um, that's been dropped down you know um, I think is is and, and sort of throwing his voice as it were um, but he's milking it for for his own ends and then it goes too far and he's uh yeah this is the thing so. that makes me about the simpsons that they can still parody a movie that is that old and mm. people would get it you know the kids probably have no idea what that's relating to you know like sideshow bob is definitely max cady out of bloody cape fear you know yeah, there was yeah. that one there was that episode wasn't it i think it was the first sideshow bob episode he's on the boat isn't it i think yeah uh, yeah it's exactly the, the, you know, complete parody of Cape Fear. Um, well, the Simpsons has always been so good because it works on different levels, doesn't yeah. it? Is it still going? Though? Yes, 30 plus. They're still making new episodes. Yeah. Oh, anyway. 32 seasons or something. Now. Yeah, and, and Bart's still in school. He hasn't left yet. So, yeah. so trying to sort of tie this up a wee bit now. I mean, final thoughts, guys. I mean, I loved it. absolutely adored this movie on so many different levels from the fact it was a classic piece of Hollywood, an overlooked Billy Wilder, undeservedly panned on its release, undeservedly. And then if it finds a, a bigger audience now, so be it. I absolutely hope it does. I hope people go back and take a look at this and think, do you know what? Still relevant, absolutely relevant throughout. Yeah, when I was watching it, I was, um, I, you know, I picked a couple of holes in it. Like I said, the timeline, it all gets set up very, very quickly. But then I thought, well, it's a sort of a fairy tale and with Stephen bringing in that sort of supernatural element that makes me think even more <laughs> that you know this is a film it's not supposed to be it's not a documentary so it, it's very um there's definitely symbolism involved but yeah I think the relevance of it and the way our media has gone and uh, like I said earlier one of the key scenes really is him and the Albuquerque boss boot discussing journalism yeah it's a very mm. quick discussion but that's what it comes down to journalism has changed and there was a demarcation point, as I said, with the Sun in England. Definitely in America, they've got the National Enquirer and and the rise of 24-hour news and this news cycle where everyone can, you know, about COVID, you know, suddenly the official line is that the vaccine doesn't stop you getting COVID and Dr. Fauci's being paid off by pharmaceutical companies. But no one's, <laughs> no, but it's fact now, pretty much. And But no one's going to go back to 20 and 20 and say, well, yeah, we were sold that and everyone believed it. Should mm-hmm. we believe everything that comes in the future? But people have a tendency to still keep believing it because the news cycle, it's like a magician's trick. Oh, we'll put your attention over here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, brilliant. Really good choice. Thanks, Stephen. It's glad you, you both got something out of it. And it, mm. I think you, you know, you're right that it is lesser known um, of Billy Wilder's uh, output and unfairly so, although... You know, the difficulty is when you've got a great back catalogue, um, you know, the lesser lesser known ones or the ones that are considered to be weaker or, or less popular are still fantastic just because the, the, the hits are so good. So, this, you know, it doesn't denigrate this at all, that it's not one of the most well-known or, or most uh, watched of, of the films. But certainly to, the script is fantastic. Yes, 
you know, Kirk Douglas carries this film very much um, in, in virtually every scene and the energy and taking the film forward, just as the character does in the entire film, really, is embodying that, that he's the one that's carrying the whole thing forward as, as a story and, and taking it on his, his shoulders for good or for ill. It is absolutely a film that is overlooked and does have relevance to the, the day, this day and age and, and comments on not just journalism, but also the way in which people react to other things that are happening with other human beings. I mean, going and, and turning up to, turn up to watch something bad being happening to somebody and they can't even see what's happening to the person because he's, you know, he's, he's hundreds of feet below <laughs> below their feet. And, and how um, easy they are to manipulate, you know, brain yeah. circuses. Make it into yep. entertainment. Get yourself a big top and a roller coaster. I yeah. mean, a roller coaster for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> it's and, incredible. And, and that's the thing. A media circus, you know, is is becomes a carnival, and you know, it's all manipulated, and people are, are easily manipulated, and it, you know, mm. it does have the relevance, like we've said to mm. to now, probably even more so than it did then, because that was just the there were still perhaps some honest journalists around back then, whereas less so now, I would say. <laughs> and one of the things as well, just going to sort of finish on this, that mm. Kirk Douglas often gets overlooked as an actor. You know, he's just this chiselled mm. leading guy that was Spartacus or whatever. But I'm Spartacus. Uh, I'm, mm. I'm Spartacus and so is my wife. When Douglas actually realizes what he's done and the turnaround in his character in this particular movie you know the beginning of his downfall yes is absolutely superb it is some of the finest acting it was totally believable the way that he realizes and the guilt and the pressure that's put upon him when he realizes how spectacularly he has fucked up you yeah know? and that really hit home as well i just thought Do you know what yeah, don't write off Kirk Douglas. That man actually could act really. Yeah, I forgot to mention as well. Yeah, at the end because he he calls the editor mm. and tries to turn his confession, yes, of basically being a murderer, yeah, into a news story. But the editor's not interested. No, no. and how cutthroat are the other people as well? Because he he doesn't he doesn't um, send the copy, does he? Quick enough. Yeah. So the other journalists, they just think it's really funny. You know, it's a yeah, it's a cutthroat. I mean, I've never been in that world, but. I bet it's a cutthroat world, you know, like politics. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. So superb all round. Absolutely adored it. Okay, guys. We're going to get back together in a couple of months' time, the three of us here on Stinking Paws. And by all accounts, it's my turn to choose for you, chaps. So take a little break and I'll let you into what we're going to be watching. You're that Tatum guy that was popping off over the phone last night. Not popping off, Sheriff, just threatening. You play along with me and I'll have you re-elected. You don't, and I'll crucify you. That's all I said, remember? I think I'll have my boys take you to the county line and throw you out. Throw out your campaign manager? You need plenty of help, Kretzer. And maybe before I throw you out, I'll toss you in the clink for a while. Wasting your time on a rattlesnake hunt. This is where the votes are. What do you know about votes? There's seven here in Escadera. Seven hundred up there. We had a big barbecue and I made a speech. A good one, too. And we sat down to a little poker game, and you started bothering me right in the middle of a hand. What'd you have? A pair of deuces? This is better. Here we've got an ace in the hole. Two candy bars, please. How much of those Swiss cheese sandwiches? I'll take a Come on, Mama, I need some help. We're swamped out here. 
Come on. How's this, Sheriff? Uh, tomorrow I'll have your name all over the paper. The man who rushed here at the first cry for help to direct the rescue operation. By Tuesday, everyone in the state will know you. Gus Kretzer, the tireless public servant who never spares himself. I'll pile it on every day. Six days of this, and I'll make you a hero. The election's in the bag. In the bag, the guys running against you will vote for you. Okay, I'm a hero. Well, what do I make you? Now, here's the deal. The way things look, there's gonna be other newspaper men trying to horn in on this story. A lot of them. Maybe all the way from New York. This is my story. I want to keep it mine. You're going to help me. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. Okay, chaps, right. Now, regular listeners to this show uh, and to the Real Britannia podcast, which both of my guests are frequent visitors, Stephen, my usual co-host, Anthony, a very frequent guest, will be aware of Stephen's other role, which is the curator of the Village Hall of Fame. I wanted to what you were going to say then. Yeah, yeah, honestly, yeah. Hold tight, hold tight. And <laughs> not, not, not that, not the drug dealer role. That no, 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 that's, no, that's no, not, that. not, not as important as that one. I and... think in the, going back to the conversation about me being interviewed by people in uniform with a little pocketbook. So no, carry on then. Yeah. But many years ago, now when this podcast first started, which is nearly ten years ago, for God's sake, we started the Hall of Fame here and. It just fell by the wayside because it was such a monumental task. I just didn't keep up with it. Stephen has picked up the baton in regard to Real Britannia. And for those that don't know, what we normally do is if a, an actor, director usually, or, or somebody of influence appears on the show three times, they get inducted into the Hall of Fame. And we've always said, Stephen, haven't we, that Real Britannia is not grand enough to have a Hall of Fame. It's the Village Hall of Fame. It's yeah, a, a yeah. lonely affair. Uh, and you have been curating it for five years and it's just snowballed out of control with 400 plus inductees and all of this. And, and it's not, you know, the famous people that we expect to be. It's all the, the background characters. Similar yeah, stand cast, even. Yeah, yeah. The similar to the cast of this. All, all of these would have appeared in it rather than Kirk Douglas, you know. Mm. Stephen, what is the standout movie that appears every single time in the Hall of Fame? Uh, a night to remember. A night to remember. The which was a cast of hundreds, and and if you were a jobbing actor at the time, you appeared as an extra or a star in that film. Yeah. Now, Stephen joined Real Britannia around about episode fourteen, I think it was, wasn't it? Mate? Yeah. With Excalibur yeah. was your first review. Yeah. And, and we'd already reviewed Night to Remember, so mm. it was sort of like lost in the mist of time five years ago stinking paws is not strictly american movies so i'm going to throw a night to remember out to you too Ooh. Ooh. 
without the pressure of Stephen having to compile the Hall of Fame. <laughs> uh, can you do oh, it yeah. just for comedy? Yeah. Uh, just because I know every time the three of us get together and we mention Night to Remember, we'll go, oh, God, we really need to talk about this film. It's got bloody Kenneth Moore in it and 1,500 other famous people, basically. Yeah. And wow. it is a far, far better film than Titanic. We, we, we're going to actually agree on that before we even go into it. Yeah. How do you think about that, guys? Just do a British movie on stinking pores. Let's make it a real classic, shall we? Like that. Yeah. I mean, it's great, but you're going to hate me because I'm, I've been a Titanic scholar basically for about 20 years. Again, again. I'm going to be throwing all kinds of stuff at you. You but, can yeah. nitpick and pick all the. No, it's not. Nit- it's not nitpicking. It's just uh, putting in real details. No, Night to Remember is pretty, pretty realistic actually. It yeah. is. Like it's just there's a lot of revisionism, yeah. you know, like. Um, about the Beatles or uh, you know other bands, you know these famous stories. No, it's constant revisionism, and uh, there's a like a thousand-page book that came out about four years ago that I ploughed through. But yeah, I can't wait because I, as you know, your attention to detail is one of the things we love about you because <laughs> it brings that element of professionalism to everything. Okay, so. <laughs> Talking about professionalism, the line's just gone funny. Yeah, it oh, just did. Yeah, so. <laughs> no. It's, it's, that's actually worse. It's, it's now, you know. Oh, dear. Come back, come back, come back to where you belong. Yeah, Hello. there you go. Hello. Scott, you had a Beatles question for me. Hmm? Yes, right, this is what I'm going to say. Um, yeah. Again, with your attention to detail, which we love, is, is also your fascination with trying to find the Beatles connection in everything we talk about which again mm. I adore I adore the way mm. you do this and are we did we find anything from yourself did you come up with anything well I mentioned a couple earlier very tenuous oh, there was right. there was one thing it's kind of a serious point I yeah. had a guy on my show mm. who was around the Dakota on the tragic night of December the 8th, yes. 1980 when John Lennon was shot yeah and um in the Glass Onion podcast, I do try to go beyond sort of, uh, is this a good album, is this not? And we kind of delve into human nature and psychology and all that kind of thing. And I asked him, because he was a friend of Fred Seaman, who was John Lennon's assistant, so he had a sort of tenuous link. Mm. And this is so bizarre. He was, um, December the 8th is also Jim Morrison's birthday, obviously posthumous birthday, because he died in 71. Uh, of course, yeah. Um, now, this guy, Fred Seaman, he used to score up weed for John Lennon. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, which refutes this sort of official nice narrative. Oh, he was completely clean. Mm, yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, and uh, Fred Seaman used to share it with this guy, Robert Rosen, who was on my show. Hmm. And how bizarre is this? Robert Rosen was smoking some of John Lennon's weed. He was he was listening to a Doors special on the radio. Yeah. And he heard the news that John Lennon had been shot and killed. I mean, surreal. He was like, surreal is not even a word. I'm smoking John Lennon's weed and I find out it's been killed. And he went to the Dakota because he was a journalism student and went on to become an author. He's like, what's a journalist going to do? You're going to go to there and, you know, not revel in it, but you're going to be curious to see what the atmosphere is. Yeah. And he said the atmosphere, you know, people were mourning, but they weren't hysterical and there was a party atmosphere. And he said, I've just got to be honest, there was a party atmosphere. And there was a weird thing that was going on. Some of the early uh, newspaper reports had already come out. And this is what we're talking about, the media. They have to be first on the story, yeah. even if it's a horrible story. And this was about three hours after it, after he'd been killed. But there were thousands of people around the Dakota constantly playing his music. And every time they played A Day in the Life, 
the first line is, I read the news today, oh boy, they would hold up the newspaper saying John Lennon shot dead. And it wasn't like, it wasn't that they were, like I said, they weren't reveling in it, they didn't have big smiles on their faces. But yeah. this guy said, let's be honest, there's a buzz, you know, because people want to be around a historical event. You know, I guess 9-11 probably similar, you know? Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's a very, media is such an interesting thing. And that's one of the things, again, I loved about this film because it, you sort of saw that, you know, it becomes a tourist event and, you know, people are going on roller coasters. And, uh, yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. What was I'm, your Beatles question? Well, no, I, <laughs> I was trying to find a link similar right. to yourself. It, it just mm. came to me this morning. I'm thinking, well, there's no other famous people apart from, you know, Kirk Douglas in this movie and Billy Wilder are the two sort of like the most recognisable people in, you know, associated with the film. Mm. Is there anybody on the Sergeant Pepper cover that could possibly be related in some way to Kirk Douglas? I'm looking at it now and thinking, oh, oh. Marilyn's on there, W.C. Fields is on there, Johnny Weismuller. Is mm. there is there anybody? Marlon Brando's on the cover, isn't he? Marlon Brando's on there. Is is there some sort of tenuous link that we can get a Beatles sort of like link to Sergeant Pepper? Show uh, me some people that he was involved with. This is not, yeah. Charles. This is what Stanley Kubrick's not on there, no. He's no, there, I, know, so I was trying to think of Cuckoo's Nest or, or something like that, but there's nothing. I mean, have a think, have a little think. I mean, <laughs> Dan Laurel's on there, but I'm sure they never appeared in film together. And Bob Dylan, no. we know, you know. Sonny Liston's on there, but I don't yeah. know. He's Fred, Fred Astaire's there, isn't he? Um, yeah. There must be, because Marilyn's on there. There's got to be some link somewhere. We'll find it. All right, it. next time, next we'll time. We'll find it and we'll, we'll, we'll bring that tonight to remember. Um, <laughs> there's probably uh, someone from Night to Remember on there that's it, actually yeah, I'm just looking it's, it's yeah. Diana Dawes isn't it is on there she wasn't in Night to Remember I'm sure uh, or, yeah. or was she oh <laughs> <laughs> well here's a here's a bizarre fact about Sergeant Pepper yeah John Lennon being John Lennon they all made a list of people that they wanted to have on there yes so, in, so George chose a load of Indian holy men Paul chose a few people mm. Ringo said whatever the others want is fine mm. and John Lennon uh Surprise, surprise, what did have Jesus, Hitler and Gandhi on there? That was it, yeah. And they said, oh, sorry, John. But uh, here's, this is quite bizarre. They actually did get a Hitler um, cutout. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they put it behind someone else. So Adolf Hitler is actually on the cover of Sergeant Pepper. I'm, I'm looking at his sleeve now and I can't see him, so yeah. I don't know who he's behind, but uh, yeah. He is uh, very, very tenuously on the cover. I always forget that Stuart Cutcliffe is actually lurking right on the left-hand side. Yes, well, and of course you've, you've got the um, Madame Tussauds waxworks of the Beatles just to the left of the Excellent, the yeah, looking, looking very sort of melted and, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, right, well, night to remember next time, chaps. We'll do that in the new year. Uh, mm. like this episode will be going out before the new year. Uh, we'll just have to see. It's been an absolute pleasure. Stephen, before we go, sir, can you just say a few words about Real Britannia for me, please? Mate? Oh, well, it's it's uh, a lot better when we have the likes of uh, Anthony uh, <laughs> or, uh, or some of our other guests yeah. on. Yeah. Um, uh, occasionally it, it dips in quality when it's just me and you, Scott. But um, <laughs> overall, yeah, it's, it's classic British cinema, which um, doesn't just get restricted to old stuff. There is stuff that's within the last 10 years, but it is mostly stuff going back. I think the oldest we've done is something uh, from the 30s. Covers the full gamut, whether you're talking about James Bond or kitchen sink dramas or Ken Loach or the carry-ons and plenty of variety in there. A lot of stuff from the uh, golden age of 
of both Ealing and the Channel 4 Film 4 um, stuff. So we uh, we jump around with lots of different genres as well, whether it's comedy or drama or even doing the hammer horrors we're working our way through. So there's plenty of variety in there. There's usually something for somebody, even if you're one film you're not keen on, the next episode you're likely to find it's so different that um, that one might be more for you. It is only with a hint of professionalism, except <laughs> we, um, we have guests on. Um, <laughs> we uh, we try to have uh, a, a little bit of fun with it, which is why on the Hammer ep- episodes we've got the, um, the Hammer House of Horror bingo um, card oh, yeah. going, going oh. on. <laughs> the, as you've said, the uh, Village Hall of Fame is uh, an unexpected feature <laughs> that, that is uh, is um, manning the depths of who is the real stars of British cinema, Absolutely. which is the not the big names you would recognise. That they are the people that are the lesser known characters who your face faces will be recognisable even yeah. if the names aren't. But uh, we delight in that kind of detail of of British cinema and and that quirkiness um, and. Let's face it, being British is very much about being quirky. So um, yeah. we uh, we celebrate all of that in British cinema. Fantastic. Stephen, thank you. And again, thank you for the Village Hall of Fame. We, we didn't realise how much work this would involve. And I don't look at the spreadsheet that you've created. <laughs> I can't of it. Anthony, Anthony, you have three podcasts on the go, as well mm. as guesting on numerous others. Just let the listener know where they can find you, mate. What, what's it all about, sir? Yes, I have my own uh, mini podcast network. Mm. Uh, the original one was Glass Onion on John Lennon. As I was saying earlier, it's not just, you know, which is John Lennon's best song or best album or whatever. Delve into all kinds of things in his life. And it's uh, a lot of it's sort of psychology and that kind of thing. And then Life and Life Only is psychology and also alternative media. So uh, it's very, very uh, connected with what we've been talking about today. It's sort of search for inner and outer truth, if that's even possible. And then Film Gold. Film Gold kind of gets left behind because it's hard enough work doing the other two. But uh, I do occasionally get episodes out. And um, you might let me use the audio for a couple of episodes. Oh, cool. I, I was actually going to put out, I mean, it's, it's probably already gone out by the time it's going out. But I'm going to get Raging Bull out there because Raging Bull is actually my favourite film of all time. So Yeah. That's cool. the three, yeah. And they all kind of connect in a weird way. Lots of things I talk about on one will connect to something from the other one. So I like to think of it as one work, you know. Right. And it's available everywhere. Yeah, the, the Twitter, at Onion Lennon, and then at, I think it's Film Gold 75 and Life Only 75. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. There you go. Thanks again to both of you. Stephen, in particular, thank you for making me watch this again. I, I don't know when I would have got round to watching this movie again if it wasn't for you, and I really enjoyed it, even though it was 5.30 in the morning. Uh, what a great way to spend a Saturday morning, watching Kirk Douglas go go absolutely bananas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this has been The Stinking Pause. I've been Scott. He's been Stephen. He's been Anthony. See you guys next time. Take care. See you later. Take care. The management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Astral arms, that infernal jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies. Good night, sir. When you fail down. 
positive thinking. That's what I told the man said. Don't wear a frown. Try positive thinking. Laugh at your troubles instead. You've got to look on the bright side. On hope so much depends. With your confidence sinking, positive thinking helps you on the way, my friend. When things look black, try positive thinking. Treat every season as spring. No glancing back. Try positive thinking. Trust what tomorrow may bring. This crazy world that we live in will keep on spinning round. But with good, strong, positive thinking, we'll get together and life won't let us down. Oh, shut up. We enjoy it.